Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is episode number 124 and very excitingly it is the second time that Mr. Ben McCallery is our uh, our interviewer. I'm going to yeah, I have another crack at the hosting chair for you this do. episode. We did such a good job with your conversation with Dr. Anna Rubenstein. Uh, what was that? That was the middle of the year. It was a while ago, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I still get frequent emails from people saying what an impact that episode has had. So um, we've been keen for you to do some more some more interviews, and today you do. Mm. Who do you chat with? I chat with a good friend of mine by the name of Andy McLean. Now, he, I've known Andy for quite some time, but I wanted to chat with him, and I wanted to get him onto the show because... He's actually gone through this year a very similar journey to what we have. Mm-hmm. So he's this year separately made the decision to go it alone, mm-hmm. start his own business, follow his passions, and he's got some really good thoughts on the matter. Okay. We do also explore, because it is a sort of a common thread with my previous podcast, around mentor, mentoring and mentorship. Right. Mentorship. Because I know that's been... A, a focus of mine this year mm. has been very important and Andy has always been a big champion of um, the act of being a mentor so and being a mentee as well so that's what we we explore and dig a little bit of deeper into his experience and also how it's made him a, a better father as mm. well and we talk about him being a father of two girls and the importance of feminism and, you know, like we do, we do, we go around the That's block. Awesome. I think this is going to be one of those episodes that people keep coming back to because there is a real lack of men having these kinds of conversations in public. And I just admire you guys for, for sitting down and, and having this kind of conversation and then choosing to share it with people because mm. there's so much to be gained, I think, from from having open, honest conversations like this that not only say, you know, it's okay for men to think and talk about about this kind of stuff openly, but not only is it okay, but all these wonderful things happen when you start to engage with things on a deeper level. Mm. And I think I think it's awesome. I really do. Andy's great. He's a great guy. I, I mean, he's, he's such a super dude and, you know, I've got all the time in the world for him, but he's – his passions and what drives him is they just interest me endlessly mm. because you know he's into Shakespeare, yeah, massive passion. He's into ocean swimming, yeah, it's another huge passion. Meditation. I just find that he's got really a real. He's very driven, mm. so he's he's a very driven um, guy. But he still balances it with his interests and his passions and. Him going out and doing his own thing has enabled him to explore that even more. Exactly. And bring that into, you know, it's just really nice to see him being able to explore his passions but still do um, his work as a freelance writer and editor. Mm-hmm. He's also a podcaster. He is a podcaster. So we, He's a cracking accent too. Great accent, mm. but he, he sort of gets into me for, for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you have to listen to it. But uh, – and – He's got a, a podcast on uh, Shakespeare, actually, Bell Shakespeare. He does a podcast on that. We actually did our first podcast together eight years ago. You and almost, Andy? Yeah, almost in the exact room that we were recording. That's so funny. 
this episode. Wow, you were like you were cutting edge. You we were, were cutting edge. We were pioneers in podcasting. You, <laughs> you really were. And then just gave it away. Eight years ago, wow. Yeah. Anyway, there'll be a whole heap of links to some of the things that we talk about in the episode, including Andy's social media profiles and his podcasts and the magazine that he publishes mm. as well. So um, check out the show notes, uh, slowyourhome.com. One, two, four. <laughs> Enjoy. Enjoy. How are you? Ben, I'm really well, thanks. Thank you very much for joining me. And I must say, it's a little bit surreal being back in this building recording a podcast in front of a microphone with you because I think it's been, what, eight or so years since we first did this, as in we recorded a podcast together? Yeah, yeah. Way back when we were when we were young and naive. and It is absolutely bizarre, but yeah. more on that a little bit later. I think it might be worthwhile just starting off. Um, and what are the circumstances surrounding us getting together today to, to have a chat? And I'm going to kick off if that's okay, and please um, chime in as you, as you see fit. Um, so if, for those that can't tell, um, Andy's got a bit of, bit of an accent. Uh, he originally came from Zambia via England and um, has been in Australia for around about 15 years. Now, you met your lovely wife here in Australia. You've had two beautiful uh, kids and you well and truly call Australia home, don't you now? Apart from when Australia play England in any form of sport. Yeah, I'm fair income now, Ben. So although my accent is uh, is obviously not at all Australian, um, I guess it's worth pointing out, Ben, everybody has an accent. But yes, I have one too. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've been living in Australia for about 15 years. Excellent. And your, tell me, what, what do you do for a, for a crust? What's your background? Well, uh, I started out um, talking into a microphone like this, uh, but it was on radio. So I worked on BBC Radio back in the 1990s, uh, before the days of podcasts, uh, when we used to edit our audio with literally strips of tape and a sharp knife and, uh, and little pieces of coloured sticky tape. And that's how we used to do our audio editing, which is a bit crazy, but that's how we used to do it. Did they have the internet back then? No, this is pre-internet oh, right, as well. Okay. Oh, yeah, right, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Showing, I'm really showing my age. This, this is back in the '90s, early '90s, um, and since then, I guess I've been writing professionally in one sh- way, shape, or form for about 20 years. So, I've done everything from music and theatre writing to business and finance. I've written about washing machines. I've written about contact lenses. Uh, you name it, I've probably written about it at some point. Um, yeah. So now I, I'm basically a freelance content producer. Uh, and I'm also the publisher of uh, a business magazine called Acuity. So. Awesome. Okay, so full disclosure, we've known each other for, yeah, around about eight years or so. Uh, we've worked together. And let's explore, first of all, I really want to know, because I've made a very similar dis- decision this year, about what what led you to go freelance, as in what led you to leave uh you know a secure 
job, secure circumstances around that job to pursue freelance slash start your own business. It's all a great big mistake, Ben. <laughs> uh, in a way. Um, so it was a gradual decision, I suppose. So what basically happened was uh, I was running the magazine full time and I kept getting tapped on the shoulder. People kept saying, oh, Andy, you couldn't write this for us. Could you record a podcast for us about this and, and that kind of thing? So it was all a bit of an accident. And um, it started off as a hobby in my spare time. I was doing the extra writing and stuff. And then it kind of grew and grew until I was pretty much working seven days a week, five days a week running the business magazine in what you might call my day job. And then two days a week freelance content producing. And that was sort of starting to get to a breaking point, I suppose, mm. getting a little bit on the busy side. So I discussed this with my mentor, a guy called Peter, who mm -hmm. has been amazing. Uh, and uh, basically, we kind of, I, I was assuming that my choice was either ditch my day job and go solo or ditch my solo stuff and keep my day job. But we sort of talked around it and Peter said, well, there is maybe a way you could do both. And, and we sort of try to look at it from lots of different perspectives and 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 I think the advantage of having a mentor is that they do have a kind of a fresh way of looking at the problems that you've got in front of you and we kind of worked out that I could probably run the magazine three days a week do my day job three days a week if you like and then two days a week move to freelance and that's what I did so what I did was I was kind of proactive about it so if anyone listening is thinking about oh, how do I make that work for me what I did was I went to my employer with a solution so I didn't just go along and say well I want to go down to three days a week yeah. you deal with the problem I went to them and said I'm going to go down to three days a week and here is how I propose we continue to make the magazine great and look after all of that side of things and it involved taking on somebody else part time and uh, I had somebody in mind who has been excellent and I knew would be excellent in the role uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. It's almost a little bit of succession planning, wasn't that, really, on your, on your half? Yeah, it's yeah. about making sure that things kept going smoothly even once I'd moved to that new three-day-a-week arrangement. Okay, so there's a few things that I want to sort of dig a little bit deeper, uh, and you mentioned a few key themes. First, let's, let's talk about the role of the mentor, because I'm hijacking uh, the Slow Home podcast again, as I did during the year, and one of the real... Big, um, I, I suppose, topics, subjects, themes that I want to explore is all around mentoring because this has come to me this year. Really, um, I haven't really hadn't really appreciated mentorship or the role of the mentor and the mentee and the importance of it until this year. Until I had a bit of a breakthrough with the community work that I've been doing. But I know that you've been very passionate about it, probably a little bit longer than me can you describe your history of of how you've you know sort of got involved in in mentoring both as a mentee and a mentor yeah so I have done both um started off as a mentee and I continue to be a mentee so I've found the value of a mentor has been invaluable professionally for me so uh I've the way that works for me is I meet with uh with Peter on a monthly basis and have done for a couple of years now and we basically sit down and he sort of says, what's the biggest challenge in front of you right now? And we talk around that. Uh, and the advantage of having somebody like Peter is that he's impartial, so he doesn't work for my employer. So he's completely independent in that sense. He takes a very holistic view to it as well. So, uh, And the other thing that's really good about Peter is he's got a lot of experience. So he's worked 
uh, in publishing and in other sectors as a business leader for a, a number of years, like decades. And so that experience that he's built up, he's able to kind of, he's probably come across a similar problem mm. to the ones that I've come across at some mm. point in his career. And he's got really good models and ways of approaching it and, and suggestions and stuff. But I've been fortunate also to be a, a mentor. And, and how that has worked for me is uh, a couple of people that I've worked with previously have approached me off their own bat and said, would you be interested in mentoring me, Andy? And, and I've been really happy to do that. So that's been really interesting because I'm now, um, as you've guessed, I've already mentioned the 1990s being the start of my career. I'm mm. now in my... Uh, Oh, you don't have to do this, mate. You don't have to do this. <laughs> I'm old. Let's just say I'm old. I'm getting on a bit in years. I'm, I'm well into what you might call middle age. But one of the great things about being well into, into middle age, uh, and there are a few, is that you do build up a fair amount of experience and knowledge. And it's great because it helps me to guide me through through my life, and, and that's awesome. But it is really great that a couple of people who are in their 20s have got in touch with me and said, would you mentor me? And I've done that. And I've loved being able to um, share my experience with them and, and, and give them a little bit of advice and, and help them through. And that's great. Like, to be able to to be able to help somebody mm. just based on sitting. I mean, it's really easy. The great thing about mentoring, the, the experience I've had, is it, it's fairly informal. Like, you sit down, you have a chat over a coffee. It doesn't have to be, like, you know, lots of checklists and documentation and all the rest of it. But it's just a really nice way of, of helping to guide somebody through their challenges. And, and often it's they already know the answer. Mm. Uh, but it's helping to give them a framework and, and, and help them to kind of think things through in a, in a considered way. But the other interesting thing I would say also about being a mentor is that when somebody puts uh, dilemmas in front of you, it does make you reflect on how you're doing your own things as well. So uh, it kind of keeps you honest because mm. if I'm advising somebody to, um, let's say they've got a, a moral dilemma at work and I'm advising them to do the right thing and to be very transparent and accountable, when I then reflect back on my own circumstances in my own professional life or personal life, I, you know, it does keep me honest. It kind of, it does mm. make you think to yourself, I've got to be the best I can be and I've got to do the right thing by people myself. So, yeah, it's been it's really that, interesting. It's that mirror, isn't it? It's putting that mirror up to yourself and it is a virtuous circle um, and that's the, what is the beauty about the, the mentor and the mentee relationship. I'm really interested, for me, that you were talking about the informal nature of mentoring and this is the, I think this is the missing link for me and my experience in life, really, is that you get so many people telling you, you should do this, you should do that, this is what you've got to do, compare yourself to this person, they've done this. It's the telling, it's the constant telling this is what you should be doing. What I've really enjoyed and what I think is is missing in a large part in, in a lot of um, society is that sharing of stories, sharing of experience, hooking into that knowledge that people have and not preaching to them, letting them come to their own conclusions. That is what I think is the, is the real, you know, the, the key with a successful mentoring relationship. With you and your experience, so with your uh, mentees, is there anything that you try and keep top of mind when you're you know, sharing particular stories or, you know, are there any sort of rules or practices that you think are really, really important for a successful relationship? Well, first of all, I think you need to set up the boundaries of the mentoring arrangement 
up front mm. and that needs to be really clear mm. so uh, a couple of things on that uh, one is uh, I would establish with them and their employer if it's a professional um, relationship uh, the independence and the kind of I suppose the that it's that it's a safe zone and that anything that's discussed between me and the mentee is uh, remains between me and the mentee uh, so that gives them a kind of total freedom to to be really upfront and, and open and honest mm. and, and and vice versa so that's one thing the other thing that I think is really important with uh, a mentoring relationship and I found very useful is again upfront to establish what the longer term priorities are for that person what is it that we're trying to more broadly looking at their whole life and saying what do they want from their life and then working back from that and then going okay well within the confines of what we're doing how can we help you to get there mm. um, and you know maybe the mentoring relationship is for 12 months and we say okay then well in the longer term you want to be here in five years 10 years whatever it might be um, in the next 12 months we're going to try and do these things um, so I guess it's trying to get an, a sense from them in terms of without trying to sound too cliche, but mm. it's trying to work out what success looks like for them in 12 months. And then and then, and then it's basically holding them to account in a nice, polite, gentle way. Right. But by basically agreeing, like, these are the things they want to achieve in 12 months' time, you then say, okay, then, right, so I'm going to sit down with you um, periodically in our mentoring discussions and just check in with you and say, how are you tracking towards these things? Um, so they're useful approaches I think has mentoring changed your life yeah it has actually yeah and I think certainly as a mentee it's mm. changed my life I think um, one of the great questions that Peter asked me at the start of every time we sit down is he goes how's the family and that's really interesting because I've usually rushed across town to meet him from a very busy day in the office and loads is happening and charging around and the stress and the everyday pressure and that question that he asked at the start really gives you perspective and you suddenly go well actually yeah the family's pretty well hmm. um yeah and and as soon as you answer that question it's like well actually yeah so the most important thing probably in my life is going really well uh and you know peter does it in a really relaxed casual kind of way but i know it's partly deliberate but the undertones you know? yeah, yeah he's, he's yeah. being smart yeah. and uh and that's really good because that immediately takes the heat out of whatever it is you're going to come discuss afterwards because it's like well in the context of the bigger picture, yep. you know, maybe this isn't the most, whatever the problem is, it's probably not the most terrible thing that's going to happen to you in your life. Mm. So it's, um, yeah, it's understanding your purpose and it's almost what is the, what are, what is the central priority in your life. So let's, let's explore that, but let's explore it in looking at the big change that you've made this year and your decision to go, go it alone. And I'm really curious to find out from you, what was the driving factor behind that? What was the actual, what was the burning platform? What was the, the, the thing that you said, right, now is the right time to do this, to go out alone? And you, you mentioned that it had been something that you'd been building up to, but what was the moment? I think one of the major moments was probably just realising I was exhausted. Uh, and it's interesting, isn't it, that you, a lot of people find this, they drive themselves into the ground and they go, hang on a minute, this isn't sustainable and I think that that was probably happening I was uh, juggling my day job and juggling my freelance and you know it was very hard to do an exceptional job at everything 
and work seven days a week and also be a good husband and be a good father mm. and be a good friend and all the other things mm. that you try and do in life. So uh, I guess that, that it was kind of a, a crunch point, really. Uh, and that was what led to the conversations that I had with my mentor. And, and that was what led me to the solution that I came to, which is a, ended up being a really good compromise. Uh, but I think... Work-life balance is commonly used phrase now, but it, it, it's commonly used because it's very important to a lot of people and it's important to me too. And I, as a father, want to be uh, present. Uh, it, it, and, and I mean that in, in its simplest sense. Like, I want to be physically at home with my kids. I want them to see me. I want them to be used to having me around. Uh, and that's really, really important for me. Uh, working every hour God sends is wonderful because commercially I mean not commercially um, financially and materially you know you can look after everybody but what Felicity and my wife and I did was we kind of sat down and said look um, how much do we actually need financially like yeah. it's all very well yeah. making as much money as we possibly totally. can but like that, that's not really we're not at all motivated yeah. by money you know we, we're yeah. not into all of the flash things that money can buy and all that so we kind of stopped and said well it's great that you know business is going well and all the rest of it but um that's not an end in itself mm. like uh so we sat down and we said okay financially what could we live on mm. what if we simplified things and, and we've got small kids at the moment so much as we might like to be going out seven nights a week that's not happening so in that sense it's quite easy in a way to live a simpler life mm. and so we boiled it down and said okay well actually we could probably make these cutbacks and simplify things in these ways and you know we're very fortunate because we live in Sydney where the weather's good and we live quite near to the beach so beach holidays probably aren't required and, you know you, you kind of yeah. sit down and you do all of that sure. and at the end of that you say well actually we could survive on a lot less than what we needed so um, that takes some of the pressure out of feeling like you have to work every hour God sends. And did it feel like a huge weight being lifted from your shoulders? Totally. It's amazing, isn't it? Like just that realisation that you come to this, it's this clarity, it's this state of being and you're just like, why did I hold on to those things when they just don't even matter anymore? Yeah, I, I'm really pleased that you said that because it was exactly like that for me as well. Yeah. Exactly like that. Yeah. With a thread of the, the big thing for me was I wanted to be home to be able to pick my kids up from school how ridiculous is that that I, and I couldn't do that last year I just couldn't that was just a small thing but it it, it shaped it grew into something that had, you know led me to to, to going at and, and starting up our own business so okay so you've got two young kids and I've got two young kids they're of similar ages and uh, you've got t two girls two little girls so tell me a bit about you know, because I've always identified you, and you identify yourself as a as a feminist, because you you studied. What did you study at school again? Studied sociology at university. At university. And uh, Jermaine Greer came into my life, so to speak, as she has with many people, uh, and it wasn't solely her. Naomi Wolf and a number of other mm. feminist writers too, quite influential. But um, yeah, I, I certainly um, from the age of about eighteen onwards, I've considered myself a feminist. Yeah, yeah. you're very passionate about it. So. Tell me, being a father of two girls, what are the, what are some of the things that you keep top of mind um, when when sort of dealing associating yourself as a feminist in their lives? I think that the way I look at it is this: as a, as a father of girls, 
Uh, and in my house, there's no there's no boys in the in the house other than me. Uh, but it still f- carries even if you're a father and there's, there's and you've got um, sons in the family as well. If you're a father, then you are a role model, kind of whether you like it or not, because kids will grow up in your household and they'll look at your behaviours and that's what they'll come to expect mm. to a certain extent from from gender. Um, and I think that. I think that feminism benefits men as well as women, and I think that's something that's often forgotten. And mm. I think it liberates um, both genders from stereotypes. And so, if you think about it from a male perspective, you just talked about picking your kids up from school. Mm. I have that um, great pleasure of doing that too, and, and it's, it's it's amazing. Mm. But it's interesting that I think even today there's a lot of families in Western societies who would think it was really odd uh, to have a man doing that. Uh, quite remarkable, really, mm. but that's still the case. And I think that that's partly because of the expectations that society has on women being the carers and, and all of that side of things. So um, I think as a father, what I want to try and do is model my behaviour uh, so that my girls expect um, the men in their lives to be present, mm. um, playful, involved in parenting uh, and in housework, um, and also caring as well. So I want them to see me being affectionate and caring towards Felicity, my wife. I want them to think that it's normal for, for that to happen, that um, I want them to see uh, how much I love Felicity because I want them to grow up and expect that from their mm. other halves. Mm. Um, whether their other halves end up being male or female is immaterial to me, but let's assume for a moment that they are mm. men. I want them to have relationships with men and expect men to be affectionate and warm and caring and to contribute um, to the home in the same ways that they would expect a, a, a woman to do so. Um, basically, I think that's it's as simple as that, really. Mm. Tell me, and I'm going to go back to the theme of mentor um, uh, again as well. Do you think that being a father of um, two girls has helped you, and equally being a, a mentor as well, do you think that you're a better father because of you, that the fact that you've be- become a mentor and a mentee as well, or is it, um, and equally, do you think you're a better um, mentor because you're a father of two girls? Uh, that's really interesting. I because think- they are two distinct skills, I've got to say, and they're, I think, complementary but not the same. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's really interesting, isn't it? I think, um, I mean, one of the one of the people I've mentored is a girl in her twenties, and it might be it's it'll be really interesting when my own kids get to that age to see whether there's things from that mentoring experience that will uh, help me mm-hmm. in parenting. I think, you, as you say, they are they are a bit removed. I mean, mentoring is a little bit independent. Um, and, and it is that kind of deliberately and I think sensibly kind of arm's length to some extent. Mm. I mean, it's very hard to say that, Ben. I'm not sure. Yeah, good. What do you think? I think they're complementary, they're, they're but, I mean, as a parent, you need to be disciplinary. You need to... that You've got to be impartial, but as, as you would as a mentor as well. You can't be judgy. You've got to just... You know, you've got to be That's there true. and just, you know, and just listen, be an active listener. So I think that being an active listener has certainly helped. That's a skill as a mentor that has really helped me uh, be a parent. But um, 
you know, certainly you, you've got to be very careful um, to, you know, you, you've got to be there as a disciplinary, as a, as a parent, but that you can't really do that as a, as a mentor. Anyway, it's a, I, I think it has made me a better parent being a mentor. That's really interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. Um, I'd, I'd certainly say that as a mentee, I have learned things from my mentor that uh, have, have helped uh, and it might be kind of indirect things. So there was the, uh, we live in an apartment, mm. um, which kind of goes back to that whole thing about the financial side of things. We decided we didn't need to live in a house; we could live in an apartment. And if we did that, then our expenses would be less, and yeah. it would allow us to do more of the things we enjoyed. Um, and my mentor lent me a book, uh, which is called "Don't Think About Purple Elephants," uh, which, of course, makes the first thing you do is you think about. Purple elephants, elephants. Uh, and uh, but the, it was really interesting because um, we were talking about that in the context of a work situation in terms of helping to persuade people and bring people around to your way of thinking, uh, but also that the logic of that book, I have applied that to my parenting. So we haven't coming back to us living in an apartment. Mm. We have a balcony, uh, and it's really important that the kids don't jump off the balcony you know that's, oh, of course. that would be yeah. you know as a parent yeah. that would be a bit disappointing wouldn't it wouldn't it yeah yeah i think you might feel a little bit like you failed as a parent if you, yeah. if one of your kids did that so yeah. <laughs> um so we have a rule on our balcony which is always keep both feet on the floor uh and so the idea there is that what you don't say to the kids is oh don't stand on that chair and lean over so you don't kind of talk about the thing you don't want them to do you talk about the thing that you do want them to do and then they focus their mind on that so my kids know religiously whenever they're on the balcony it's both feet on the floor and it's you know it works and it works it absolutely works like they've never (laughs) i've never seen them um you know try and lean up over and all that kind of thing or you know they, they keep their feet on the ground yeah that's on. a really really good it's a good book to, i'll link to it in the show notes okay so big career change for you big life change for you this year as it has been for me as well so there's a lot of similarities now l- like me hopefully being self-employed being your own boss to a certain extent has allowed you to explore your passions and i've spoken about mentoring as a really important thing for me this year how important are your passions to you? Because I've got a very strong opinion on your passions. <laughs> <laughs> well, because first of all, I've got to say, you've got to be one of the most driven pe- people I know, without a doubt. You, your mind, when focused on something, get out of the way because you're just going to do it, right? So how has that, has that helped or hindered your passions? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, funnily enough, Brooke... Uh, your mm. your good wife um, is also of that ilk. I think it's mm. fair to say. You know, if, if she's passionate about something, then my gosh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen, and she's going to give it absolutely one hundred percent. And I am the same. I know that. And uh, and and Brooke and I have chatted about that in the past. Um, and it's so in terms of my stuff. Uh, well, a good example would be uh, one of my clients is Bell Shakespeare, the theatre company. Uh, I was fortunate to grow up in Stratford-upon-Avon in England, which is William Shakespeare's hometown. Yeah. So I have kind of a... I, I mean, I, I adore Shakespeare's work, um, but I also have a kind of a personal attachment to Shakespeare in a sense because I'm from his hometown and I've kind of grown up surrounded by the theatre and all that kind of thing. Um, and so living in Australia, there's a theatre company called Bell Shakespeare Theatre Company, and I... 
I found ways to get to know the people that work there and, and, and I've succeeded in doing a quite a lot of writing for them for the past sort of five years now. Uh, I might add I don't write the plays for them because somebody's already taken care of that. <laughs> uh, William Shakespeare did that 400 years ago. But I write about his plays. Um, you improve them. <laughs> <laughs> You do a very uh, good yeah, that's job. right. Yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah. I do a little bit of editing yeah. here yeah. and there. You know, yeah. just tweak. Them. Can't help it. <laughs> Can't though. help it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, but the thing about Shakespeare, um, and I won't digress too long. But the thing about Shakespeare is he is that four hundred years ago he was writing about love in Romeo and Juliet. He was writing about family in Hamlet. He was writing about loss in Cymbeline. He was he really understood women. I mean, one of the interesting things about Shakespeare, particularly given the time he was writing, was that he wrote about his female characters are often funnier and cleverer cleverer than the men in the plays, which I think is great. And that's probably why somebody like Jermaine Greer, who I mentioned before, Mm. has pursued a whole academic career out of being a Shakespeare um, academic. You know, Jermaine Greer writes about Shakespeare all the time. You didn't know that. She wrote a book about Shakespeare's wife, which I've just finished. Uh, Anne Hathaway, which is fascinating. Yeah, Yeah, because one of the points Jermaine Greer makes is that everybody was writing about Everybody, everybody, I say everybody, academics throughout the years and critics have always made lots of assumptions about Shakespeare's wife and about Shakespeare himself. And they've assumed that Anne Hathaway was illiterate. Mm. They've assumed that she didn't read his plays, that she wasn't really interested in his plays. Uh, And all these, and there's this assumption that Shakespeare didn't really love her and all these kinds of things. Uh, And she sort of exposes all of that and says, well, actually, if you strip away and look at the facts, there's nothing to suggest that Shakespeare, in fact, he could have been completely in love with his wife and she could have been actually quite involved in the publishing of his plays posthumously Mm. um, after he died and Mm. and things like that so uh, where am I going with this Ben I'm I'm disappearing down a rabbit hole which is what happens when you give me a topic I'm passionate about exactly Uh, but I suppose the the point really is that um, I'm passionate about Shakespeare's work I think it's really relevant still today he he wrote uh, Richard III is a play about a megalomaniac who uh, rises to power by exploiting people's fear and distrust of outsiders. Uh, Now, the more uncharitable people among us might suggest that there's one or two politicians that have been doing that lately, um, not naming names. Uh, So, you know, the guy understood people and he really fundamentally. And so I take a lot of joy from that work. and I think we can still learn a lot from his work. And I love the fact that when I work for Bell Shakespeare, I'm helping them to explain the work to people, that people can enjoy the the plays more fully. Um, And they do a lot of education and community work as well, Bell Shakespeare. Uh, And so I love the fact that some of the stuff that I do touches on that and helps to contribute to that as well. Well... Do you and or do you? Because I know you do. Um, you also podcast about Shakespeare, which is another, obviously, another one of your passions. Yeah, that's right. So um, for Bell Shakespeare, I write, but I've also done podcasts for them too. So that involves interviewing um, directors actors and just getting under the skin Fantastic. of the plays really and it's it's wonderful and yeah. talking to those creative people you know like they, they you know you think I'm passionate about Shakespeare wow you know these people are um, they're just they're incredible and they're very you know one of the interesting things about working in with arts organizations or any organization where people are passionate is is just the the great joy that they take from their everyday work and you speak to somebody a company like bell shakespeare and they just adore Mm. what they're doing Mm. and they really believe so deeply at their core in, in in what they're doing and and 
it's just it's a joy and I've been to I've been to schools and seen the they have young actors who go out to schools and tour around the country performing with with primary school kids and and, and, and secondary school kids and the impact that that has on those kids and it just it's just amazing you know yeah. like you just it's it's a wonderful wonderful thing to see uh, and so it's a real it's just great to be working with people who are passionate and joyful in what they're doing is a really lovely place to be do you think that you would have been able to enjoy and explore this passion to the extent if you were still working five days a week no I couldn't have done I had to make the change mm. uh, and that's okay I mean I, I'm fortunate also that the you know the the magazine that I run I'm quite passionate about too and I really enjoy mm. so uh, what we try and do with Acuity as a business magazine is we try and explore uh, business and economic issues from fresh perspectives and we've talked to some really interesting people down the years uh, we've talked to um, uh, Harper Reed, uh, who uh, was the chief technology officer um, for uh, Barack Obama a few years ago during one of his election campaigns. It won an award that one, didn't it? it? Do, yeah, they yeah. won uh, magazine cover of the year this mm-hmm. year. Uh, and also um, Reed Hastings, who um, is the guy who was the founder of Netflix. All, all kinds of people. Um, we've, we've had some really, really interesting interviewees. Uh, and... Uh, so my passion for that is 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 is, is huge. But your point to, to your point, could I have done all the all the Shakespeare stuff as well as continue to run the magazine uh, five days a week? No, I had something had to give, and I had to have a, some sort of compromise. But this has been a great arrangement for me because I've managed to do three days a week, still run the business magazine, which I love doing, and then roughly two days a week, I'm I'm freelancing doing my own stuff but also having that time more time at home with the kids as well so it's worked out really well what about relaxation what do you do to relax i i work hard to relax in and i <laughs> let me let me put that another of course way you do. of course i do i play hard uh you know I, I i don't do things by halves ben as you said before so uh, i had a back problem that came on about 15 years ago and the doctor said you should swim uh, and me being me, I kind of taken that to a bit of an extreme. So, uh, but it has done me good. It's done me a lot of good. Uh, mm. I swim all the time now. So I swim around an island in uh, in Sydney called Shark Island. Yeah, uh, aptly several, named. Aptly named because there are sharks there, although most of them aren't deadly. Uh, so um, I've I've still got all my limbs intact. Yeah. But yeah, I, I so I I do swim in ocean races, and I guess I'm probably at the more extreme end of of swimming if you like uh it's a bit of a thrill-seeking thing particularly when you're kind of swimming out in that choppy water but there's a really i mean one of the things that helps me to relax in a way is that when i'm out swimming in the wide open ocean and the waves are coming in and all the rest of it you really have to keep your wits about you Mm. so you can't be kind of swimming and thinking about all the problems that you've got to deal with at work or anything like that you've actually got to be keeping your eye open to make sure that you're not going to get dumped by that wave that's coming towards you because it might hold you under and you might not come up again so uh it's really good you know it's uh it's 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 an adrenaline rush and it also forces your mind to focus absolutely on the here and now it's the ultimate single task isn't it? Yeah. It's like you've just got, you're there. And what, what I love about swimming, and I've always wanted to get into it, but I, I, I can't for whatever reason. I don't understand. I just, you I, can, uh, you can. But I, it's, I, but, you know, I, I, don't, have, I don't things. have that drive. But, you know, it's the, the whole breathing. It's that meditative state that you get in when, and it's a, a rhythm that you go through. That, that's what I really love and can really appreciate about uh, swimming because it is a, it's almost um, meditation, isn't it? And that's something else that you do. 
Yeah, it is. It is. It is it, there are some similarities with meditation, certainly, and particularly when you're out in the ocean, and you do really have to be in that moment. Uh, but the, the breathing is good. Yeah, it does. It does. It regulates your breathing uh, for sure. Swimming, um, and and yeah, I'm, I, I I have discovered meditation in the last sort of couple of years. Uh, and that, that came out of adversity as well. Funny, the mm. swimming came out of adversity. And I think the meditation did too, because, you know, work and life was kind of getting on top of me in terms of it's just the sheer busyness of it, I suppose. Uh, and meditation has been fantastic for me. It's been so good. Do you meditate daily? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I try and keep it as f- quite flexible. So, I, I mean, I, everybody's different. I quite like guided meditations. And there's somebody uh, called Tara Brock who produces regular podcasts. And they're a series of either talks about an issue uh, or their actual practical guided meditations. Uh, but the things that she talks about, she draws on... Um, on all kinds of wisdom from all kinds of different parts of uh, of the world, I suppose. So different religious um, uh, wisdom, certainly, uh, but also wisdom from writers and poets and all, all kinds of people. So mm. it's not uh, one particular um, style, style, genre, or, yeah, no, yeah. or, or flavour. And, mm. and I think um, one of the things that uh, I've actually found really interesting about the meditation path and listening to Tara Brach is that... Um, it's reminded me that there are all these different lessons you can learn from from organised religion. Because personally, I'm I'm atheist, but um, I think I had a certain amount of cynicism for organised religion, and now I feel a lot more accepting uh, of people's religious views and and much more um, tolerant. And uh, I guess I can really see the value and the benefits of of religion for people, uh, which I couldn't before. So it's made me much more. Um, Understanding, I mm. suppose, and and more compassionate towards people and and the, and the differences that, that there are. So that's been really interesting. Uh, and in terms of that dealing with sort of um, stress, that's really where meditation is where I started off with it. Mm. And one of the points that Tara Bright makes is about playing the ball where the monkey drops it, which is quite interesting. And that's basically. Uh, can I swear on this? podcast yeah oh no i'm not going to swear no oh, no can i no, no, explicit what do you, really? we put explicit on them yeah. no i won't do I won't. it no 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 <laughs> <laughs> shit happens ben I, 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 uh, shit happens uh but play the ball where the monkey drops it is a nicer way of putting it that the story comes from uh as a golf course in india where people used to hit these balls onto the greens uh, as you do in golf uh, but monkeys used to come along and pick the balls up and move them around and it used to drive the golf players absolutely mad and they couldn't find a way to get rid of the monkeys like they, they tried all these different ways to discourage the monkeys from hur- hanging around the golf course but they couldn't do it uh, and so in the end they said you know what the new rule on the golf course is play the ball where the monkey drops it we can't stop the monkey from picking up the ball and moving it around so we're just going to go with it and I think that that's a really really good message for people in terms of accepting imperfection in your life mm. and accepting that bad things do happen it's a great one for perfectionists yeah, yeah it, it really is yeah and that's great for me yeah <laughs> and brooke <laughs> and brooke too yeah and and, and it's you know we, we can't control everything around us and, and things will happen in our lives that we can't control and some of them will be difficult but we can spend a lot of time worrying about them and getting hmm. uh really worked up and, and angry and, and 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 so on but at the end of the day 
to, at some point you have to accept that there's certain things in life that are going to happen and then you you deal with them it doesn't mean you have to be meek and accept uh, you know that global warming's happening sure. and that that's okay mm -hmm. at all but it just means that internally you kind of process it and you can I suppose respond to things like something like global warming if you like um, in a more uh, measured and intelligent um, way rather than just responding emotionally a couple of years ago we um we were having a, a lunch and I hope hopefully not sort of not giving too much away but you weren't in a good place change needed to happen because you you were you were struggling now I'm really interested what how have you transformed you've you've transformed what got you through well, a couple of things to say on that. I mean, one, you did catch me at a particularly bad moment there, but you're quite right. There was, there was a period there uh, where things were very challenging in the work environment. Uh, and this happens, to, and this happens, I think, pretty much to everybody Everyone. at some point in their career, for sure. Uh, but I was certainly uh, very worked up, stressed, wasn't sleeping. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was all getting a bit intense, really. You're quite right. Uh, I remember that day well. And, and what's changed, I think, uh, well, it's interesting. The things we've talked about today have, have been big parts to that. I think uh, meditation, not just focusing on how to deal with stress, but also celebrating and, 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 and savouring the, the joys of life as well. Because if you think back to that day a couple of years ago when we were sitting down having lunch and I was really worked up and stressed... If I was to have stepped back at that moment and looked at my broader life, I would have known that, you know, I have a wife who I love enormously and, and who loves me and, uh, and I have a really great network of friends and family around me. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not living uh, in, in great poverty. Uh, I live in a in a country that uh, you know, for the for the most part, is fairly stable, and, and all the rest of it. So, um, the bigger picture, I think, meditation has helped me to focus on that and accept uh, that there are difficulties in life, but to keep them in perspective. So, probably perspective is one of the big things that's changed, Ben. Uh, to answer your question, I think. Um, I have a better perspective now. And then the other thing, again, to, to reiterate on what we said mm -hmm. before, is, is the mentoring. So I think that having somebody with a little bit of distance who you meet on a, on, a, on a monthly basis or on a periodical basis, you can talk through the issues. Uh, somebody who's got experience and who's, whose opinion you really value and you really respect, uh, it just gives you another person on your side. Uh, and uh, sometimes I can even imagine my you know, my mentor in the room, you know, uh, if I'm in a particularly difficult discussion or a conversation or something like that, and that can actually really help. Yeah, I th perspective, meditation, mentoring. It's beautiful. Yeah, well, a, a work in progress, mate. It's all a work in progress. Absolutely, for all of us. So here's a challenge, which I, I know that you'll be up for. Brooke on this podcast often talks to her guests about their why, as in what is their single overarching purpose in life? And for many, and I'm included in that, I don't know my why and I can't, I, don't, I just don't have it at the moment. Do you know your why? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, uh, do I know my why? Uh, I guess in a way, I suppose I don't. It depends on what level you're talking about your why. So sorry to, sorry to complicate this, but I think if I was to think about it 
uh, from a family level, then yes, I think I do know my why in terms of looking after the kids, bringing them up uh, to hopefully, you know, be to contribute to society in a good way and, and to have a positive impact on the people around them and, and so on. So I think that that's really, really important. And I see that as a real responsibility. So that's a why. Uh, and a lot of what I do in my life is geared around that. But I think, um, to be really, really honest, if I was to say uh, what is my why and what is any of our whys, then I think that it echoes slightly what I just said about the kids, which is that uh, I think we all should try and contribute positively uh, to uh, to the society around us. And that is a very broad statement, uh, but I really do believe that. And I think that uh, that should be everybody's why to some extent. Am I doing that enough? Not sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm always my biggest self-critic, so... From that perspective, uh, I you probably, are, you yeah, are. I'm probably yeah. not. I'm probably failing miserably. But um, I think that I think that we all need to take some responsibility for for things around us and, and try and improve things. And this is a really rambling response, Ben. The short answer to your question is no. I don't. I don't think I'm living my why at the moment. But I think I probably do know what the yeah. why is, yeah. and there's more I can do. We are so alike. Sometimes it's not even funny. It's been um, <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you, mate. I really value your friendship, and it was uh, an honour, people. Right back at you. Jack Rabbit FM for your ears. Who is that? Hi, podcast.